is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. WTF Bach here, dropping you some talk about the Bach who walks the walk and rolls and rocks around the blocks of Leipzig if you turn back your clocks to circa 1723. Look, I want to play something for you that you've probably never heard. could be a summary of Bach or all of deep learning. That is, you begin to hear something that you think you know, but then as you get into it, you realize it's much deeper than what you thought you knew. And you know something is happening, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? The universe, just like we think we can see the end of it, it suddenly, little by little, starts to escape us. Now, before I get into the piece, I played just some housekeeping. I've been getting a lot of feedback and listeners writing to me, you too can do it. Bach at WTFBach.com. This is what it's all about, folks, writing me and spurring on this discussion of JSB. Many, maybe even most of the episodes this season have come at your behest with your ideas and questions and thoughts. So a big shout out to my listeners from this past few weeks in Copenhagen, Santiago, where I have never been, and Switzerland. I love hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you. It makes me feel like I'm doing more than just speaking into this microphone in this very empty room. Two episodes back, we discussed the cantata which contains Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring, and I called that piece of music Bach's biggest hit. And two of my listeners wrote me with a few thoughts about the episode. One reminded me of a version of Jesu Joy that I forgot, and it is perhaps one of the greatest, most loving tributes to Bach ever created, even though it's an advertisement for a cell phone. I will put the link in the description. I was moved to tears while watching this cell phone commercial. I think you will all enjoy it. Briefly, a large wooden xylophone was built in a Japanese forest, and a wooden ball rolled down it, and the ball drops in time on each of the pitched wooden bars, which were laid out so that as the ball rolls along through this forest, it plays Yea, joy of man's desiring. Remarkable work. And I think only the greats inspired this type of care, this type of planning, teamwork, to recreate music from so long ago in such a novel and beautiful way. The second listener said, I see your Yezu Joy, and I raise you the C major prelude as Bach's biggest hit. For a brief while, I did consider doing an episode on the most famous Bach piece, especially after the longest Bach piece episode, the most famous Bach piece might be interesting. 
Determining such credentials would be even more tenuous than my long piece episode, Famous How. Well, of course, one could look up the most played piece by Bach on Spotify, which is interesting because that happens to be by far the G major cello suite as played by Yo-Yo Ma. But still, who made Spotify the platform for the most famous? I have a water boiler, after all, that every time the water is ready, it plays... That could easily be more famous than the G major cello suite, but a note about that piece. This is not by Bach, oh dear. What man, by Christian Petzhold. This was Bach's contemporary, who was praised in Bach's day as one of the most famous organists and one of the most pleasant church composers, but very few of his compositions survive. And clearly his most famous composition is this minuet, which survives through Bach. And I think that that is a very telling testament that this famous piece, which was always thought of as by Bach, is Bach's collecting another composer's music. In my interview with Christoph Wolf, he mentions how Bach made transcriptions of Handel, but it isn't known if Handel made transcriptions of Bach. Bach was the great collector, and this piece, which is associated with Bach, isn't even his own music, but is a record of other music that existed. Now imagine that. Imagine being so famous for two things, your own music and the records you kept of other music. And that is why Bach is capital B-A-C-H. It's a lesson to us because Bach became Bach by doing this type of work, reaching so far back into the past and reaching as far into the present as he could. He was able to see into the future through that type of discipline. And I would bet that for any of us trying to make a profound influence on the world through art, we cannot stay in a bubble. We cannot isolate into our own time, into our own circles, but we must reach as far back into the past and into what is going on today if we wish to make a mark like Bach did. Sorry, I got carried away with preaching, but we are here, after all, to discuss this piece, this first prelude in the Well-Tempered Clavier. There's too much to say about such a piece of music, so I'm going to restrict our discussion to just three areas of this piece. Firstly, how this piece became, oh, that piece that even if you don't know Bach, you know this piece, piece. Secondly, the origins and the purpose of such a piece. What would that piece have been doing in Bach's day? What, what function would such a piece have served? And thirdly, how this piece has inspired people even until today and how people have made arrangements of this piece even until today. So firstly, let's talk about the fame. How did this piece find its way into contention for not only the most famous Bach piece, but perhaps one of the most famous pieces, the most famous ditties of music of all time? For those of you listening who have seen someone in the subway playing a cello probably with a backing track, there's the Ave Maria. I'm sure you've been to a wedding and have heard this music, and if you hear these first few bars and are awaiting a cello melody to come over the top of it, it's probably slower. And enter cello here. But this cello melody was apparently an improvised melody by the 19th century French composer Charles Gounod, or Charles Gounod, which floats over the top of this texture by Bach. And I will not play the melody for you, because if you're like me, once you've heard this melody, you, you sort of wish you never heard it. It's like hearing words that someone puts to famous music, and now every time you hear that famous music, you hear those silly words. But indeed, this Gounod's version with this cello melody, which is called Ave Maria, is so incredibly famous and could be one of the reasons that this music has been made even more famous 
And maybe if you were into prog rock in the 1970s, there's also Procol Harum's version. Um, maybe if you're into musicals, there's Don't Cry For Me Argentina, which apparently also is based on this piece. Okay, fine. But there must be a reason that Gounod and these others used this piece in their own music. I wouldn't be the first to claim that this prelude is no more beautiful than any of the others in this collection to which it belongs. So allow me to be so bold as to claim that this piece of music is famous because it's at the beginning of the book and it's easy to play. We have that feeling of opening up the Bach book, seeing this easy looking piece, making some music out of it and then saying, oh, that's not so bad. Maybe I'll play the whole book. Let's turn the page and then, oh, you have this four voice fugue staring at you. Now for me, this was every single Bach book I owned as a kid even as a young professional. And I wonder if Bach knew this. As the author of Great Adventures, he writes the most enticing opening chapter of the book, and then you turn the page and what is going on? I better go back to the first chapter I can read. I am claiming that it's being perhaps technically the easiest piece to play and being at the beginning of the book, I think that helped the fame of this piece. I think that is the fame of this piece. This prelude is the first prelude written in perhaps the most important book of keyboard music ever written. I could stand by that statement that the well-tempered clavier could be the most important book of keyboard music ever written. And independently of whether or not you could play all of the pieces in this book, as a music lover, you recognized the importance of such a book and therefore you owned it. And therefore you would open it to scratch the surface. And if you're not a professional musician or even a pretty good amateur, many of these pieces in this book would be completely inaccessible to you. But this one, this one, why, everyone can play this one. It has been that way for centuries. Let's look at the origins of this piece. What I played at the top of this episode is one of two earlier versions of this piece. That's right, there are two earlier versions of this piece. One that comes down to us in a notebook Bach prepared for his oldest son, W.F. Bach, in 1720. This piece of music has 27 bars. And by then, Bach had no plans, or at least no evidence of any plans for creating the collection which was to become the Well-Tempered Clavier. He was penning preludes one after the other in beautifully infantile forms into the notebook of his son without fugues. But by the time he was creating the Well-Tempered Clavier, that's when we have 24 pairs of preludes and fugues in all possible keys, and we have another version of this prelude in 24 bars. That's three bars shorter than the WF version, and that's the version I played at the top. Now, let's compare the two early versions. Let's compare the one that's 24 bars that I played at the top and the one that's 27 bars. All of the versions start with the same four bars up front. And you'll forgive me for sort of playing my way rather quickly through this. Now, the versions that we know that we're familiar with have this as the following chord, and indeed this is the case in the notebook for W.F. Bach, but the first version of the Well-Tempered Clavier goes straight from this, not to this A minor, but to this D major. So we have... So that's something from the initial version of the Well-Tempered Clavier. In the notebook for WF, it goes to this A minor indeed. And this follows what we know. Until here, where we have... 
the endings of the two earlier versions do seem to be the same. They are these chords. So we have the idea that Bach had more or less the beginning and the ending in place, but as is the case with Bach, he doesn't shorten music in revision, but he makes it more ornate and elaborate, usually by making it longer and bigger. And here we have this image of him injecting into this early version of the well-tempered clavier. Let me see how many bars this would be. I guess eight bars at least, because by the time we arrive at the well-tempered clavier in 1722, our famous prelude has 35 bars. So that means that we have three versions of this piece in 24, 27, and 35 bars. Looking at music this way, we begin to see that it's organic, music whose length and form are somewhat amorphous. Maybe we can get away from the notion that this music is sacred, sort of played with such reverence like this, that it's untouchable. At least in Bach's mind, this piece was not set in stone. This piece was alive. This piece may have been an improvisation every time Bach sat down. If we actually look at the music in the two earlier versions that I mentioned, he writes out the pieces as such. I'm going to play through them as they look on the page. You see, indeed, these 16th notes written out. And then he stops writing them out and he simply writes in half notes. Of course, you don't play this. This is just Bach's being in a hurry, having to write cantatas and change the diapers of seven children while doing so. And even when he gets to here, he writes whole notes. So it doesn't even bother to write two half notes here. Now there is an interesting measure, so let's discuss it. It's called the ghost measure, or we could refer to it as the lost measure. This is the Schwenke measure. S-C-H-W-E-N-K-E. I want you to open your score of this music, if you have one. If you don't, maybe your grandmother has one. Maybe your estranged intellectual uncle has one. Someone has got one in your family. There are so many copies of the Well-Tempered Glivier floating around. Go and find one and see if your copy is one of many that reprints a measure in this prelude that is inauthentic. Does your copy of the C major prelude have 36 or 35 measures. If your copy has 35 measures, you've escaped. But if your copy has 36 measures, you are in possession of this amazing example of people trying to correct Bach. It has happened throughout history. People go back into Bach, the editors, they look at this highly stylistic, this highly Baroque music, and they reduce these figures, and they sort of correct the form. Albert Schweitzer talks about this in the opening chapters of his book on Bach, that some of the earliest editors of the Well-Tempered Clavier had reduced fugue subjects from this to something like this. I mean, they thought that was, was maybe unnecessarily complicated, so they reduced it literally to... And here, in this C major prelude, we have 
possibly the most famous example of that type of quote-unquote improvement, Christian Friedrich Gottlieb Schwenke. He made a copy of this prelude toward the beginning of the 19th century, and he felt that surely there was something lacking, that there was something possibly too audacious between the harmony in these bars here. Now, this is the version from 1722. This is the version that we are all familiar with today. So here we are at bar 21. And Bach goes here. He goes from this diminished chord to this. And in the bass, we have an F sharp going to an A flat. Now, F to A, that's three letters, F, G, A. And this is actually what is referred to in the business as a diminished third. So Schwenke thought either it was too audacious or maybe maybe thought that there was an error in the transmission of the copy that he had. So he inserts a measure, which is... Do you hear how he smoothed it out in his mind, or at least tried to smooth it out from this chord to this chord? That chord, and then the rest of the prelude. Now, for us today, this is just a perfect example of falling away from Bach, because not only does this illustrate the fact that an editor like Schwenke was probably unfamiliar with much of the more audacious harmonic daringness in Bach's youth, such as stuff from the chromatic fantasy and fugue, but not only the audacious harmony, for Schwenke this was a piece of music that was felt in groups of four, and it shows that perhaps as early as the beginning of the 19th century, people had lost touch with how Baroque music was performed, because Schwenke was thinking this. That makes one unit, and then makes another unit, and then another unit, another, another, and here's this problematic passage. Ah, oh, that only has three. And then it seems to, seems to work out. If we go to the end in groups of four, in the end. But that's not how Baroque music was felt. No one really in the Baroque era or today would feel this sort of progression happening in four. So for whatever reason, Schwenke inserted this ghost measure here, which is referred to as the Schwenke measure, of course, and it occurs between bars 22 and 23 of the real edition, we could say the authentic Bach edition. Now, the problem with this is that another editor Carl Czerny, C-Z-E-R-N-Y, student of Beethoven and teacher of Franz Liszt, that's an important person in music, he was an editor of the Well-Tempered Clavier in 1837, and this edition was one of the most successful editions of this music. It was published by Peters, still, possibly still to this day, I'm not exactly sure, but he did not know of the inauthenticity of this bar, and thus the Czerny edition, which is so widely available, contained this inauthentic bar. And to make matters worse, that Ave Maria of Gounod that I mentioned at the front, that cello melody is a melody on top of the Schwenke measure. 
His version of Bach contains the Schwenke measure. But apart from the inauthentic measures and apart from the various versions, I think it's important for us to see that this piece was, in Bach's mind, nothing more than a chord progression. Not that a chord progression is a pejorative, but it's a type of arpeggiated prelude that occurs all throughout Bach's music, and in fact, all throughout the Baroque music. Uh, there is another example of an arpeggiated prelude from the Well-Tempered Clavier. It's this famous prelude. That's the C-sharp major prelude from book two, but there is an early version of it, which is such a beautiful representation of Bach's fertile mind of how, how great he was at the art of arpeggiation, because it's in C major, and instead of writing this, instead of writing that sort of non-chord tone, this, this detail which you would have to create yourself, he simply writes the chords. And writes arpeggio. And if this were the only version of this piece that we had, instead of the beautiful version that appears later in the second part of the Well-Tempered Clavier, we might improvise it to something like this. But no, in fact, Bach's mind was, was a bit more advanced. And this indeed, too, is just one way that Bach thought of turning this basic chord into music. But why? Why would an arpeggiated chord progression be at the beginning of a tome as important as the well-tempered clavier? Well, since the well-tempered clavier is about temperament, I assume that this piece is there to check to see if your harpsichord or clavichord is in tune. I mean, tuning was a big beast. Tuning is the elephant, perhaps the elephant in the room among Bach talk that will one day surely be covered on this podcast. But assuming that we can agree that something that Bach titled the well-tempered clavier was about how to temper, tune your clavier, your keyboard, well. Therefore, it's not difficult to imagine that this little prelude here is the litmus test to see if you've done a good job. I mean, think about this. This historic approach, we suddenly see, okay, the major chord, the minor chord, the seventh chord, the secondary dominant chord, you know, the first accidental in our scale, the major seventh chord. This type of historic approach might lead us to the proper tempo. That way we get away from these, let's call them two reverent versions. This is not checking to see if your instrument is in tune. This is meditating on this music maybe a little bit too piously. And then, of course, something this fast, we, we can't actually hear if the harmony is in tune. So the next time you're playing this piece, check if your keyboard is in tune. Mine certainly is not. I apologize for that. Okay, but now we've gotten to how this piece got to the place in history. Yes, it's famous because of Gounod, Prague Rock, I don't know, the, the movies probably. But the third thing I wanted to talk about was how this piece inspires musicians today. We saw how it inspired Gounod. We saw how it inspired Prokel Harem or Harem. Uh, well, this piece inspires me, at least when I'm practicing transposition for Bach, which I think is one of the best exercises for your brain. To me, this is a piece where the chord is written twice. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. So I thought that I could actually transpose the 
second half of this bar up into a different key or down into another key. And then we get this bitonal beast. I want you to listen to this. This was my challenge, actually, for the first guest of the show, Brad Meldo. I asked him to do this and see if it reminded him of his own music. Listen to this. pretty strange at first, but I think maybe by the end of it you were getting used to it. What you're hearing is this prelude played in two keys. You're hearing it played... You're hearing it played in D major, but only after you hear it in C major, so you hear the first chord, the C major, and the second chord in the context of D major. Now, I think it's equally interesting, if you would allow me, to play the same thing, but instead of going up a second on the second half of the bar, I'm going to go down a second.
So I hope you enjoyed that. You can get used to hearing the piece in two different keys. In fact, it's bitonality at its best, maybe. There, you, you can, of course, play the entire piece in minor. But how would that work? If I were to just play this piece as if C minor were the key signature, it works pretty wonderfully. And then here, you have an F sharp, which is also an F sharp in, in C minor as well. So this chord could either be this or just ignore the F sharp. Again with the F sharp. So let's ignore it. Then you have this measure here with its B flat. This is the C major version of this chord. So I don't exactly know what to do with it in C minor. Maybe maybe just keep it a seventh chord. This is the version in C major, so maybe let's Anyways, you could hear that most of this works pretty beautifully. This sort of resembles the Schwenke measure itself. This diminished, you could leave it half diminished like this, or you could fully diminish it. And then there's this interesting measure, which I don't know how you would change this into minor. Anyways, you can see that it works very well in the minor mode. and. Almost in an amazing coincidence as I was preparing for this episode, the composer John K. Stone wrote me that he had just created a version of this prelude written in the minor. Now, he does it a lot more convincingly than I'm doing here, and it's very elegant, and I will put a link to that video in the description. It's very beautiful what he does, and it's a fully fleshed-out piece. I asked him, do you know of anyone else who has different versions of this piece. He sent me to the harpsichordist Elaine Comparone, and she plays on the harpsichord in the minor, excuse me, in the major mode, starting, I think, on bar five, something like this. Altering this note here, one above. I'm probably playing a more simple version than what she plays in the end, but it's, again, it's just another way of taking this music, slightly altering it, and getting something extremely beautiful. Of course, as someone who loves the art of fugue, what goes up must come down. And I thought, if this prelude goes up, what if I were to go down? So that going up a major third, and then a minor third, and then a perfect fourth, and then a major third. This is keeping the distance exactly the same, but going down. So major third, then minor third, then perfect fourth, then major third. And you would get sort of the, what is going around on the internet as negative harmony. It is essentially the inversion of this piece. The direction is inverted, and listen to the results.
Okay, so what you just heard was the photo negative of this prelude here. Right, and what happened was that instead of going up this distance, I went down that distance. It's... So this nice tonality of C major inverts onto F minor. And what you heard at the end there, these notes, these ominous sort of Fs sounding there is actually the dominant pedal point in our C major version heard down here. It mirrors itself to this. And then of course the top, the C pedal point on the bottom becomes the C pedal point on top. And this C major inverts itself to. Now, the reason this episode is coming to slightly later than usual is because I've been up all night trying to figure out if this is profound. The fact that this simple prelude inverts itself so beautifully. And I've decided that it's not profound. It's coincidence. What happens when you invert the major mode is it becomes the minor mode, which for us is a little bit more understandable. This scale. This is the inversion. So this scale is a little bit more understandable in this F minor than, imagine, imagine this minor scale. Inverted. That becomes this type of thing. Which doesn't make as much sense to our ears as this does. Which is why major inverts better into the photonegative than, say, minor. But the fact that there is no counterpoint makes this so beautiful in the inversion because there's no bass line. I wouldn't play the fugue for you in inversion because it simply doesn't sound as beautiful. It's full of counterpoint. This texture only sounds okay in inversion because there's no real bass line at all. So when you invert it, sort of the structure is still intact. Otherwise, imagine a piece which is firmly grounded in a bass line, and those bass lines being so heavy at the base, they don't do so well at the top when they are inverted. So the building collapses when it's rooted in a bass line. But this, since it's really arpeggios, does well. Another piece, I tested my theory to see if this is the E-flat cello prelude, if that prelude would do so well in the inversion. And, well, here it is.
there, oddly enough, where it goes into this sort of rhetorical uh, structure. It breaks down as an inversion because this rhetorical structure only makes sense to us when it's not inverted. So I think that there is actually no significance in learning from these, these inversions other than seeing our own vanity in such things. Because with deep art, we are to find such numbers like pi as it's bound to exist in mathematics. And I think that this inversion, this 846 inversion, is a thing like pi or the square root of two or something that just exists and you know about it and it's so beautiful in of itself, but it's really just a consequence of the language which is set up around this thing. I don't really want to become a philosopher on this podcast, so tell me what you think. Is it profound or does it not matter that this C major prelude inverts into such a beautiful, almost film score-like composition? So here I'm going to play for you this one which is the C-sharp major prelude. You'll hear it in inversion, and you'll hear how it, uh, you know, it sounds okay. And this one, which is the C minor prelude, it will be inverted as well, and you will see how it doesn't quite do so well. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned.
this, this podcast, podcast with your frenemies. Um, become a patron of WTF Bach. All relevant links to PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo are found in the episode description. Thank, Thank you, you for, listen- for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the WTF Bach podcast.